saw a advertisement for a bass session player Abbey Road. So I applied for it and it took me seven auditions. Now the crazy thing is back in the day, he had to send you an air letter. He jumped on the train a few weeks later. So it was over a period of time. But I remember getting outside Abbey Road for the first time and I had a can of strong beer with me. And I drank it to get rid of my nerves. Went in and they don't tell you there and then you just sight read. You go back home and a week later you get the letter. And he said, I passed the first audition. Would you come back for a second? So repeated thing again. When I get there outside Abbey Road, and this is my alcoholic mind. So I had one beer for the first audition. Surely I've got to have two now for the second audition. And I did and went in, and a week later I passed. I had seven auditions. So my seventh audition, I had seven beers when I went in. I sight read this with crazy music. I went home and I got a letter to say that I got the position. Now what does that tell me? It tells me that alcohol is my solution to everything. And there kicked off my alcoholism. So I'm going to school during the day. I'm doing uh, session work at night time and on weekends. And uh, life was seemed to be going good. It really did. And then uh, I left there during the police force. They fired me for being drunk. Called me an alcoholic. Can't believe that. My sergeant said, "You're an alcoholic, Kelly. Don't drive along. You're too over the limit. Walk home." I was absolutely aghast that he called me an alcoholic. Not that I've lost my job or anything. Or the family's going to be distraught. You know, he said, "Call me an alcoholic." I couldn't believe it. So my, I, I know now, but I didn't know then that my alcoholism was now getting a grip of me. Hey there, Recovery Nation producer John here. In this episode of Full Potential Now, Ted is joined by Dr. Rob Kelly, an alcohol and addiction expert with a story to tell and an obvious passion for helping and educating others. Dr. Rob Kelly is also the author of Daddy Daddy, Please Stop Drinking. You are not going to want to miss this conversation. So we would like to welcome Mr. Dr. Rob Kelly, PhD to the Full Potential Now podcast. Um, we're lucky to have him today. He has been in and out and around the recovery world, there's no doubt. I mean, if you read his bio, it's actually quite amazing. Born in Manchester, England. He grew up in a family of musicians and just found out he's a studio musician. Actually met Freddie Mercury. Not many people can say that. Um, so welcome. Thank you. Awesome to be here at last. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, let's start out a little bit. If you could tell us a little bit about who you are personally and kind of your journey. I know I've read a lot about yeah. your bio, but you have a very interesting, interesting story. I do. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 um, it's an amazing story. So my name is Dr. Rob Kelly. They call me the, the addiction doctor. Uh, I specialize in neuroscience um, and uh, brain science and neuroplasticity is my specialized subject. So they call me one of the greatest minds of the modern addiction world, but I do use all tactics as well. So alcoholic and addict by trade, uh, suffered badly, thrown on stage at the age of nine with my musical family and started drinking at the age of nine to conquer nerves. Now my alcoholic journey took off there, but it has been a journey and a half, let me tell you. It's been absolutely horrendous, but I'm glad I went through it because it's made me who I am today, and I'm happy who I am today. Yeah. 
So can you tell us a little bit about kind of where you grew up and what family life was like and, and kind of like your journey from, you know, like early childhood and kind of how things on, you know, sort of like your life path occurred and then maybe where you hit this kind of like staggering revelation I've seen in your, in your, in your bio, which I think is, it sounds like such a powerful experience. Yeah. Yeah, well, from Manchester, England, actually in the San Antonio, Texas now, originally from Manchester, England, uh, born into a working class, lower class family. We kind of lived on the projects or the uh, council estate, wherever you come from around the world, you identify with that. Uh, you know, my dad worked for a gas board and my mom was a cleaner. Um, just, even in my early days, I just didn't think I'd fit in anywhere. That's my biggest thing I carry today is I didn't fit in at school. When the two captains would come to the front to pick the soccer team for the day, the football team, I would always be last to get picked. And that walk of shame stuck with me. Absolutely hated it. But I have the addictive brain. So I learned karate over a short period of time and then threatened to beat up the captains if they didn't pick me first. So the next week, uh, a couple of weeks after, the captain comes up and he chooses me first. And everybody was like, wow, oh my God, what does he know that I don't? And that proud walk, I wanted to keep for the rest of my life. And that's what I tried to do. You know, my schooling was great. I was a session musician at the age of 14 because I was playing in bands in a local studio where in the old days, some of you might be horrified by this, but we actually had to play instruments like guitars and stuff. It wasn't just a keyboard. So I would go in, lay the bass track down, and we get paid like stupid money they pay us. So then I went from there musically to a place called uh, Strawberry Studios, where 10CC owned that studio. And I did work for TV and, and radio jingles and stuff like that. And then, you know, I ultimately go to college, but no one's ever been to college in my family. But again, I'm either half in or half out, all in or all out. It's just, that's the way my life is. So uh, through a Freemason and contact, I, I, uh, I got into Oxford University, uh, to Green's College to become a doctor, a uh, medical doctor. And uh, I couldn't afford it, so I saw a advertisement for a bass session player, Abbey Road. So I applied for it, and he took me seven auditions. Now, the crazy thing is, back in the day, he had to send you an air letter. You jumped on the train a few weeks later, so it was over a period of time. But I remember getting outside Abbey Road for the first time, and I had a can of strong beer with me. And I drank it to get rid of my nerves. So went in, and they don't tell you there, and then you just sight read. You go back home, and a week later, you get the letter. And he said, I passed the first audition. Would you come back for a second? So, repeated thing again. When I get there outside of the road, th this is my alcoholic mind. So, I had one beer for the first audition. Surely, I've got to have two now for the second audition. And I did and went in. And a week later, I passed. I had seven auditions. So, my seventh audition, I had seven beers when I went in. I sight read this with crazy music. I went home and I got a letter to say that I got the position. Now, what does that tell me? It tells me that alcohol is my solution to everything. And there kicked off my alcoholism. So I'm going to school during the day. I'm doing uh, session work at nighttime and on weekends. And uh, life was seemed to be going good. It really did. And then uh, I left there during the police force. They fired me for being drunk. Called me an alcoholic. I can't believe that. My sergeant said, you're an alcoholic. Kelly, don't drive along your two over the limit, walk home. I was absolutely aghast that he called me an alcoholic. Not that I've lost my job or anything, or the family's going to be distraught. You know, he said, call me an alcoholic. I couldn't believe it. So my, I, I know now, but I didn't know then, that my alcoholism was now getting a grip of me and was going to take me to places that 
were just absolutely horrendous. Yeah, I tried so many times. I didn't think I had a problem. Here's the crazy thing, Ted. I didn't think I had a problem with alcohol. I thought that maybe I drank a little bit too much. But hey, when I started my telecom company, we were taking we we're taking serious money. So I had the big house, the cars, um, you know, all these great Rolex watches, stuff like that. And then I got married, um, which the thing to do if you're drinking and want to stop, just get married. That'll stop you. No problems. The worst three hours of my life. It really was. And then we decided to have a child. And uh, I promised my wife I wouldn't drink. Four hours later, I'm drunk. And then the second child. I took a Bible to the actual birthing of the second child. Uh, I took a Bible there. And when the child was born, I put my hand in the Bible. I said, I swear to God, I will never drink again. You know what, Terry? If you caught me on a lie detector test, I would have passed. And three hours later, I'm drunk again. What I think is super interesting about Rob is he's a super smart guy and an accomplished musician. But he gets hooked by alcohol while he's trying out at the legendary recording studio, Abbey Road. This is where the Beatles recorded most of their albums. And on top of it, the alcohol actually helps him get the gig. It calms his nerves and voila, he is later playing with Queen, Freddie Mercury, and Elton John. It's hard to believe it would happen this way. Usually we think of a person that is sloppy drunk playing his bass and blows it all. But he doesn't. On top of it, he makes these commitments to not drink and even believes it so much so that he could pass a lie detector test. I actually think it's a testament to how strong rationalizations are when it comes to drinking too much. In order to drink so much or in order to be a great alcoholic, you have to have great rationalizations. Yes. It was absolutely horrendous. See, this is this is the interesting thing. I mean, we share a lot of commonality with being musicians and then getting involved in addiction work and counseling and all that business. But this piece about you saying, hey, if I took a lie detector test at that time, I would actually pass as truthful. And that, I've we've done that. that. We've done that here at Rock Academy Comedy Group. We've brought people in who sworn off and we, and we tested them. We brought a lie detector and we tested them and they all passed and every single one of them was drunk within a week. Yeah, so we Yeah, let's let's dive if we can, just let's dive a little bit deeper into this because I think this is an important point. Like when I first started working out in the field, I would see clients like this. And then they would end up relapsing. They'd be so convinced that they were never going to drink again. And I was like, and then they would come back a week later having relapsed. And I would wonder, were they lying to me? And I think a lot of beginning counselors will say, oh, the client's being dishonest. And all these clients are getting a really bad rap. Um, when in fact, in their minds at the time, they think that they're not going to do it again. Yeah, all the time. And, and it's... It becomes almost as good as a pathological liar because they truly believe what they're saying and truly mean what they're saying. So if you can pass a lie detector test and still relapse, what's it about really? You know, well, the my hour moment was stood outside the liquor store in Manchester, England, at six o'clock in the morning. I was going into detox, uh, sorry, DTs, and uh, it was pouring down. I had a t-shirt on and a pair of shorts, and I was shaking and and just it was horrible, sweating. And I walked into the store, and the guy wasn't supposed to serve him, but he always did because he knew I had a problem. I put my ten pound on the counter. He put the bottle of cat on, on the counter, and I was shaking, and everything was going to crazy. And I got all the bottle, and this is what I did. 
and then I realized it's not the alcohol. So that takes us back to the person who said he's never going to drink again. What's it really about? I've met some people that have the proverbial big moment. You know, the moment where a major life decision is made. All is lost and the one chooses one path from another. In talking with Rob, it really felt like he had a profound moment that actually catapulted him into a new life. It's almost as if he hit a switch. He talked about neural pathways and what I would sum up as the neural influence on addiction, but the one thing that was unmistakable was Rob's passion for sobriety and helping people. Well, today I know it's about neural pathways. I'm born with self-sabotaging neural pathways. That's what alcoholism and addiction is all about. That's why we're great starters. Every alcoholic and addict, even in their day, were great starters. He's the man for the job. This guy's amazing. Two or three into the job, we're drunk somewhere, we can't hold it. But we're fantastic starters because when we swear off, we truly believe we're never going to drink again. And the addicted brain is one of the smartest brains in the world. I know people that are alcoholic with the addicted brain never touch alcohol. They're the guys running the multi-billion dollar companies today because we have that, uh, you know, that focused brain that nobody can take away, but the self-sabotaging brain, the self-sabotaging neural pathways are very, very interesting because in the early days, they rule every decision I make. So if I have self-sabotaging neural pathways, I also have trauma, I found alcohol to be the solution, then when a thought pattern comes in, my prefrontal cortex, it only has one job in the world, and it's very good at it, and that is to come up with a solution to your problem straight away. The only thing is, it doesn't have to be the correct answer. So mine says alcohol every time. So I delve further into that with the neuroscience and the neuroplasticity, and I find out that the hypothalamus, which is at the back just near the prehistoric brain, it's a fight or flight part of the brain, secretes into the brain the survival instincts. So for the average person, it tells them you have to drink water and eat food to survive. That's the primal instinct that we do with the alcoholic doesn't do that. It says drink alcohol. And that's why you see alcoholics going days, if not weeks, without even eating or drinking. Because that's what our brain is telling us. So why else would we not relapse once it tells us to? As Rob talked more about the addicted brain, I wondered if people are just hardwired for alcoholism genetically. Almost as if they can't stop it. Like on an unconscious level. If your mom or dad are alcoholic, you're probably destined to be one. But there was another part of me from my addiction counselor days that knew different. I thought about the heavy influence of environment on addiction and the power of choice. I mean, who you hang out with is usually what you become. And I've seen with my own eyes the deck of addiction stacked against people. They will have parents that are addicted. The person will drink at an early age. They might even have psychological or psychiatric problems. Yet somehow, through it all, they avoid being addicted. Because it's a subconscious thought that triggers the body off, so we all get a moody and stuff and start acting differently, goes to the prefrontal cortex and it's done. I've never known anybody, a real alcoholic, turn back from a liquor store yet. Never. Because the thought pattern's there already, we're done, it's finished, it's over. The alcohol's a symptom, it's like my chicken pots. I had chicken pots once, and someone said, hey, I can see you've got chicken pots. I was intrigued. I said, wow, how do you know? I see the spots all over you. I said, no, that's the symptom. What I actually have is a viral infection that's really bad. And the bottles, the alcohol is a symptom. What I have is a brain disease. 
that's really bad. And left untreated will kill me. And that's one of the biggest hurdles I was getting over while I was doing my research into all these things is, you know, it's not, we don't get a choice. And 25 years ago, the World Health Organization put addiction as a disease because we don't have a choice over the action that the body takes. It, it's absolutely phenomenal that it's beyond our mental capabilities to change our mind once we get that. So obviously, the solution is how to stop that uh, neural pathway self-sabotaging. And that's what we do. It's almost like this idea, just to kind of even add a little bit more information to our listeners, you're t- we're talking about this reward pathway. I always call it like a dopamine dump that can occur and that yeah. you become sort of have a hijacked brain. And so the idea here, I think what you're saying is if we wait till you're in the liquor store and then you're already running with your sort of hijacked brain, the idea that you can talk yourself out of it at that point, I always felt like as I've learned being out in the field, there's a point of no return. Like that's it's a done deal. You almost got to intervene way earlier, almost before the brain begins to get hijacked. So. I'm not sure if you've made any strides in that area and, and kind of what your view is on that in terms of the best way and what you've discovered. Because you've been in the treatment world a long time, working with lots of people similar to myself. Yeah. And I'm always in search of what is the thing that will really help people? Because I just see cookie cutter treatment approaches to so yes. many people. No. And here in America, they have... Does what- people have to wait typically long time before they get in. It's hard enough to make the call. Then they have to wait another week. And then we wonder why the no-show rate is so low after the first and second session. And it's like if we send somebody out there after a week, yeah. um, they're probably going to find their way back. Eventually, yeah. But uh, here's the deal with alcohol. I'm going to talk about addiction, but let's talk about alcoholism just to give it a name right now. Alcoholism will never come to me on Monday and go, hey, Rob, let's have a drink today. It doesn't work like that. And this is the research and study and we've done. It's a day or a week before when you start to change. Johnny's becoming a pain in the backside. I can't stand this red pen you keep giving me. Why can't you give me a blue one? It's all in little things that start because we, we, we've done so much research over the last 20 odd years. So the most intoxicating part of a relapse is either the trip to the liquor store or the trip to the dealer. That's the most intoxicating part. So no, once that thought pattern comes in on the Monday, because you haven't seen it the week before, it's done. It's impossible. And that's the key to addiction is what we're really looking at. If it's a, I mean, you're going to a treatment center, they're going to teach you about relapse prevention. What? 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 I don't get that. You know, it's like going into a, into a hospital for suicide. Well, let's do some suicide things you can do. And take, what? Why are, you talk, why are you putting it in, in, the, in the brain that we can relapse? Why, why are you giving people's options? The addictive brain will always take the easiest off the way, and that's to relapse. I heard people say relapse is part of the disease, but it's not part of recovery. And people need to know this. They go in like, well, 3% success rate, 4% AA. You know, what's happening to the you know, We have a 96% success rate. Why? Because we take on four patients any one time. You have to pass an assessment. We're not going to take you on. You can't buy our services. And I guarantee that I will refund your money if you relapse. And we're talking only 5,000 patients over 27 years. Why are the other guys doing it? Because they don't know exactly and don't back what they're doing. Yeah. And it really frustrates me you know, when, they, when I see this happening. This is, this is people's life we're talking about. 
as Rob got more and more serious about people being addicted, I found myself wondering if I was as serious with all of my past counseling clients. Could I have been invested in them and really put myself on the line by guaranteeing success? Or was I not guaranteeing success because I was not sure how things would turn out and maybe not that confident in my abilities? I mean, it's pretty much the norm in the business. We don't really guarantee any kind of success in counseling. We really say it's kind of up to the client. One thing was for sure, the more Rob talked, the more I believed he would help those few people he was working with at a time to be ultimately successful in their lives. So what, tell us a little bit more about kind of your upfront approach with this assessment, because this is kind of maybe a little bit, this is definitely outside of kind of the cookie cutter approach that we see across the country in terms of, you know, even when you look at, you know, I manage and supervise a residential treatment center. Typically 30 days is what people get. They come in, they dry out for a week. And um, anybody, I think, pretty much will probably stay sober in a residential treatment facility. But then what I've seen out in the field is we just do a piss poor job of planning for them to get back out into the community. And so we end up with this turnstile. We invest all this money and time for 30 days, but we have a crappy discharge plan. They end up just kind of going back to the house. They relapse two days later. They disappear for a couple of weeks. Some, some of them probably, unfortunately, probably die, which is super sad. Or they resurface back through the front door. And we do the same thing again, and we give them the same exact treatment plan. And they go out and do the same thing again yeah. because repetition strengthens and confirms with the addictive brain. Going to a council once a week isn't going to cut it. You know, yeah, you can say so in a 30-day treatment center. Anybody can. But that's why our program is done in the home by telehealth. You've got to, you've got to recover in your, home, in, your own, in your own society. You've got to recover in your own conditions. You can't take somebody out of a sick house because it is a sick house. It's a family disease. Stick them in a sterile 30-day treatment center and then put them back without no follow-up. You can't do it. I mean, it's just you're waiting to relapse. You know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is one of my favorite books. After spending almost 20 years of school, AA book is unbelievable. Even if you don't believe in AA, the literature itself is unbelievable. And he says that the same man will drink again. So what has to change? Is it me? Do I hide my safe work of alcohol? Do I lock myself up for 90 days? No. You have to change the way you think. You have to change the neural pathways. Otherwise, you're going to drink again. Now, when we do an assessment, I call people up. You know, we've got Johnny here. He's 19. Blah, oh, he's got insurance. Yeah, okay, great. Bring him down. We'll, we'll, we'll put him in. That, you can't do that with us. You call us up. And we go, okay, we need to book him in for an assessment first online. Don't come anywhere near until you pass the assessment. And I'm really strict with them. If they're not ready and fully committed to getting well, I'm not taking you on because I'm not looking the parents in the eyes Two or three weeks later, when the guys relapsed or overdosed and died and said, we did our best. When I take somebody and I guarantee the parents that will get him well. And the alcohol and the drugs is not the problem. It's, it's, it's what can we do? How can we get you excited into life? How can we put you somewhere where you can be a maximum service and find your niche in life? Anybody can stop taking alcohol and drugs. Can you keep stop? No. Why? Because neural pathways haven't changed. So the psychic change which is a change of mind, everyone thinks it's a spiritual thing, it's not, combined with a spiritual awakening, which could be anything from, I don't want to give up, I don't want to keep doing drugs, I don't want to give up. Once them two happen, then this is our findings, your DNA changes. You're not the same person. Now we're talking about permanent recovery. 
and not a band-aid over people because it's such an industry where people can get rich. It's unbelievable. You see, the thing is with our, our business is we don't have to work. We're all millionaires in our own right. We don't need to work. I work because I spent the time homelessness on the street. I spent a year homeless after I lost everything. My kids, my wife, my cars, my family home, my, my holiday home, parents won't speak to me, brother and sister disowned me. I went from parents to, to friends, from friends to acquaintances, and acquaintances to the streets. And people say, oh, it must be hard, hard on you, you know, that couch surfing. I slept in bus shelters. I slept in parks in cardboard boxes. When you've been that low and you come back with a vengeance, you know, I, I spend all my life working. The rest of my life I'll spend working with not only the alcoholic and I, but the families. We can't disregard the families when it comes to this, you know, uh, can you recover from alcoholism? Of course you can. I'm a recovered alcoholic. What has recovered me? It means to gain one's health and state of mind back. Yeah, but there's no cure for alcoholism, right? There's no cure for food poisoning. But I follow a few simple steps to make sure I don't get food poisoned again. I don't reheat frozen foods and I check the dates on the meat and packaging. I have never had food poisoning since. It's the same with alcoholism. Give you a few simple steps to make sure you don't get alcoholism again. Never had it since. Now, I'll always be an alcoholic because it's here. It's the brain. It's a self-sabotaging brain which wants to kill me and make it look like an accident. That's the addictive brain. But there is a way around it. Ten years ago... Uh, the medical fraternity found out it, there's a thing called neuroplasticity where we can develop the brain. AA and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous knew this 70 years ago. So you can actually mold the brain and your thought patterns to anything you want. And uh, just let me give, give you a quick example before the next question. Uh, if you look at qu quantum physics, quantum physics tells me, let's say basketball court for any one time, quantum physics tells me I can be 25 places at any one time the same time on a basketball court. 25 places. Where would you want to be, Rob? I want to be over near the, the, the goal, near the hoop, so I can whack it in real easy and be the hero of the game. So how do you get there, Rob? Bear in mind, you can be at 25 places. I look at it and I take that position. I don't interview for it. I don't ask for it. I walk over and I take that position. You're a pathways. That's the power of the mind. Combined with internal dialogue. That is so powerful that people don't realize how powerful words are. Yeah. They don't. No. Yeah. Yeah. Say a little bit more about like maybe with some of the people you've worked with just in general, like success stories and how do you like if, if I'm coming in, I've just hit my proverbial rock bottom or I've had this experience where I'm like, I really need to address this um, and I'm afraid to enter treatment, I think there's a huge fear factor involved in, in the whole thing. Um, how would my brain change and what would I need to change to get off to a good start? Because I think a lot of people will make these short attempts. It's sort of like cigarette smoking. They try to quit. They try to quit. They make some great attempts, but all of a sudden they start relapsing or smoking cigarettes again. And it becomes more and more discouraging to the point where they're like, well, they adopt the identity, I'm going to be a smoker for the rest of my life, or maybe I'm going to be an alcoholic the rest of my life. I can't change. Yeah, yeah. I, we hear a lot of that. You know, I often tell patients when they come in, if we could swap places for five minutes, all your problems would be over. You see, what we do is goes back to childhood trauma. Anything less than child, anything less than nurturing a child is abuse. End of story. You know, don't do that. Don't speak. Child shouldn't be speaking. Don't do that. Get in there for a slap. You don't talk when the animals are talking. 
It's trauma. And we're growing up with that. And it comes out and, and you know, if, if anybody out there watching this doesn't feel good enough or, or, or feels less than, I want to apologize, guys, because somebody put that there. Somebody has put that in your mind. And what we do is we change it. You know, we don't know how good we are. And when we use these thoughts, let me show you, tell you how powerful words are, because we use words a lot with neuro-linguistic programming. So it's a true story. So uh, uh, John L. left the practice once and he was driving home. My assistant came in. She was crying. She said, John L.'s dad's just died in a car accident. Can you call him? And I said, yeah, I'll call him. John, I'm really sorry. I don't know why to call the office. Man, he was crying. He was sobbing. He actually wet himself, he told me later. But he was shaking that bad. He'd lost all bodily control. He couldn't drive his car. I mean, he had to get out on the side of the road. He collapsed. He couldn't stand up properly. I put the phone down about two minutes later. The, the assistant came screaming through the door. We've got the wrong John. It was John M. whose father's died. So I said, call John M. back. I'll call John L. back. And I called him and said, look, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We've got the wrong John. And he was okay with it. We got over. But it got me thinking. His body and his brain and everything about him changed on the words I said over the phone to the extent that he wet himself and he couldn't control the shaking that badly. From words over the phone. So if it can be that powerful with bad news, how powerful can it be with good words? And that's what we tell people. If only you could see who you really are, you would, it would blow your mind. And then we get them to believe that that's where we're going to go. And the, 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 the self-sabotaging internal dialogue I drop a pen on the floor, I'm a stupid idiot. Whoa, stop, stop. Because the addicted the subconscious brain will grab hold of that and it will use it on you when the thought pattern comes to self-sabotage. You're not a stupid idiot, you drop a pen on the floor, what's wrong with you? You know, when I say thank you to somebody, don't put me and start slamming around my brain. It's a medical fact. Let's start complimenting people. Let's start working with others. Let's start thinking good thoughts. You know, most people come in and go, you know, Dr. Rob, it's impossible. And I go, where's the apostrophe? What are you talking about? I said, you misspelled that. It's I'm possible. Stick an apostrophe in there. That's all you need to do. An apostrophe. It's a little mark of the pen at the top where the M is. Stick it in there because it's possible. You know, you can do anything you want. You can accomplish anything you want. Go back to the scene of the crime. Let's clear that stuff up that you went through. Let's clear the stuff up that people put it in your head. People making practical decisions based on fear. That's got to stop. Because you always self-sabotage when you're going through this thought pattern. Do you know one thing I've, I've known to is, and I've come to, I've come, I'm happy with this. Never going to be tall enough, never going to be blonde enough, never going to be thin enough, and never going to be rich enough. And once I took that on board, it was like such a relief. I didn't want other people to love me. I wanted to love myself. Mm. And that combined with NLP and re-diverting, this, this, this always got, makes people go crazy. This is my self-sabotaging neural pathways. There are billions in the head, as you know. But let's just take a couple. This is where the childhood drama. This is where I first saw alcohol. This is my answer and solution for life. These are my normal self-curing uh, neural pathways. You see, we need to get rid of this media neural pathways here because they will always be your go-to neural pathways. And we change it like this. How do we do that? Before this happens, there's a time frame of 7.3 seconds. Our research, over 20 years, with over 5,000 patients. Once you have the psychic change and you get well, you have a choice. 7.3 seconds can re-divert you into a healthy neural pathway and not a self-sabotaging neural pathway. 
So you really help. I mean, this is actually very concrete when you start talking about seconds. So you actually, like, that's actually hopeful for people who think, like, they're just governed by the disease of alcoholism, and it's just playing itself out neurologically. But what you're saying is if we can flip it, you actually have seven seconds to make a decision. And yeah, because you, you've listened to your body. You know, before it goes to the, the prefrontal cortex, if you listen to your body, you know the gut feeling we talk about? Oh, I had a gut feeling. Probably a gut feeling. That goes back to the tribal days. It's not a thing that we do, like a saying. Back in the tribal days, somebody would get one and gut feeling. It means there's danger in it. It means be on guard and they'd wait for the tribesmen up and they'd be ready for either battle or they'd move. The gut feeling is still there, guys. It's alive and well. And before every relapse, you'll get a gut feeling and your body will change. Now, if you're aware of this, because information is powerful when it comes to addiction, if you're aware of this, you can be wary of that 7.3 seconds. Now, we've timed people at 5 seconds, at 12 seconds. I come up with 7.3 seconds because it's catchy. But you know something, Ted? The knowledge alone of 7.3 seconds brings you to a standstill when you go, huh, and that's all you need. Because once that thought pattern starts going down, it's self-sabotaging, it's impossible. It's impossible. So do you find with the people that are successful with the, in terms of the people you work with, do you find that they get better over time in that decision framework of seven seconds and it becomes more of habitual almost that they can yes. sort of like circumvent it getting sort of like, I always think like it's beyond the point of control because it's entered the brain neurological zone, but like, do they get better and how do they get better? At it. Well, again, going back to repetition and uh, strengthening and confirms, you know, what, what we what we ideally want and what I have today is a immediate reaction to that thought pattern, and that's what we need. So we're we're sending we're sending thought patterns without even thinking down here. This time frame here is the beginning. Once you start doing that and you feel a body change, you get irritable, you start you know not liking people or whatever it may be. That's your relapse, guys. Not when it comes to you or your liquor store. That's your relapse. Why didn't we recognize a week before that you were pissed off with people, that you were irritable, that you hated your life? Why didn't you recognize then that that's your relapse? And we tell people that that's your relapse. Oh, it can't be. We had a patient who turned up three minutes late today. I brought him in, a well-distinguished uh, man, uh, a surgeon. We brought him in today, and I said, you've just relapsed. He's like, what? I didn't touch any alcohol. You don't have to touch alcohol to relapse. Why was you three minutes late? Well, you know, I thought it'd be okay since I've been coming there for two months on time and that's your relapse. That's when the self-sabotaging neural pathways go, hey, we're going to let this one slide a little bit. It'll be okay. What's next? It'll be okay to go to the liquor store? Because in a week or two weeks time when you relapse and you're sat there going, what the hell just happened? This program doesn't work. You're three minutes late. That's a change of behavior. I often tell people, you know, let me sum alcoholism up and addiction up for you. Tomorrow morning, Mr. John, I want you to get up or you go to the bathroom and instead of brushing your teeth, I want you to brush your toes. For the first couple of days, you'll smile. Like Dr. Rob, he's crazy, he's funny, you know. And the next couple of days after that, after about a week, it becomes a pain in the ass. It's like, really, I've got to do this? But, Mr. John, sooner or later, you're going to get up, not having a great sleep. You're tired. You stumble into the bathroom, and you automatically brush your teeth. And that's our content. You see this, Ted? This is me. This is the guy that's going to sleep with your wife, steal your car, get drunk, disappear to Spain, and do horrible things. That's me. That's Rob Kelly. That's who I am. 
You see this over here? This is my step work, me working with sponsors, dealing with my patients, being kind, saying thank you. And I walk out the door in the morning like this. Ted, this guy is going to have an amazing day. He's going to do for others that they, they can't do for themselves. He's going to give money away to them, buy their cars, buy all the suffering families who haven't got any money. This guy is an awesome guy. He's going to stay sober as well. But have a guess who wakes him up tomorrow. This guy wakes me up. And unless I do this on a daily basis, I'm done for. That's how sneaky it is. Yeah. So going to a council once a week does not cut it. See, this totally makes way more sense to me because this idea that people relapse, like everybody thinks like it's an instantaneous relapse. And what I've discovered over the years, these are set up like even months ahead of time. There's yes. little changes that start happening. Like, for instance, coming three minutes late, missing a couple sessions. Maybe you don't talk to your sponsor as much. Maybe you don't make as many meetings. You start then wandering by your old watering hole, not going in. Maybe then yeah. getting the thoughts like, oh, yeah, I could hang out with my old drinking buddies and not drink. And then even some people in that circumstance will be successful a couple times. But they're off to the races. Yeah. It's, it's, it's oh, eventually going to fall. So, I mean, heavy drinkers are disguised as alcoholics sometimes. When you set the first drink, can you stop? Big qualifier. Someone said to me, Rob, alcohol is going to kill me. I said, no, it isn't. Alcohol is not going to kill you. Complacency will kill you. Once you start getting complacent, your disease is won. Yeah. Forget about it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to shock somebody. I don't know if I should say it, and you can cut it out if you want. But when people have like that, I tell them to go and get a gun and blow their head off. It'd be a lot easier. Because you're gonna go, you're gonna drink, and drink is a die with us. So instead of a long, painful devil, a six-month dying, let's get it over with. That's how dangerous this disease is. So let's talk about people dying on a daily basis. Let's talk about loss of life, because alcoholism is still a dirty word to talk about, and nobody wants to own it. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about alcoholism and addiction killing more people than any other disease on the planet. But we don't talk about it. Oh, Jimmy died in a car accident. No, he wasn't. He was drunk. Because he's an alcoholic and he couldn't control the car because he was 10 times over the limit. But let's not put it down as alcohol. Let's put it down as a car accident. And that's the problem with alcohol and drugs is people are not taking it serious. Because it's not getting to the suburbs yet. Eminem said it really good. I work with Eminem, by the way. He's one of our patients. I was a guy about him well. And he said I can say that. I'm not just putting his name up to, to brag. Nothing to brag about. But he said, you know, when it gets in the suburbs and it starts, you know, the middle class and the high class people take notice. We have an epidemic, I've been saying this since I arrived in America 13 years ago. We have an epidemic, people, and sticking it in and out of treatment. Oh, why should insurance pay for Johnny's 12th time in treatment? I don't get that. It's like, no, they wouldn't. No wonder insurance companies are getting tough. It's like there's hundreds of billions of dollars a year spent on, on trying to get people well. And there's great treatment centers out there, but 95% of them are bombs and don't teach nothing. Yeah. And I, oh, we have, we, have, we have a saying in Texas, I hate treatment centers and they hate me. And I'm pretty good with that. Because unless you're going to do your job and put a guarantee with it, get out of the industry. Yeah. That's your that's going down the drain now, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, could you walk us through maybe a success story? Um, and maybe, like, everybody always likes a clean success story. But I know in recovery there's – there's not clean success stories. It's oftentimes like an up and down road and people coming to terms with stuff. You know, we talked about like past trauma. We talked about like really the alcohol and drugs really being sort of like on the outside and there's stuff on the inside that needs to change. And once we begin to change that stuff on the inside, maybe like you're saying, like believing in ourselves, believing I'm possible and there's possibilities for me. 
And I've always thought that when people, I always think of it, I'm kind of sitting in a lot of the space of identity. Like people really begin to wrap themselves around their beliefs, what we call, or I call schemas, their storyline of who they are and will always be. And that sometimes that inhibits people from wanting to get clean, especially if they've had several failed attempts at getting clean. And, you know, I've, I sat in so many different clinical staffings with different counselors. A lot of people will say, I just remember this one in particular. I just started at this agency. We're doing a clinical staffing, two supervisors, six counselors. We're running through our cases for the proverbial massive sign-off. And I heard this story enough, but what they said was a couple of people dropped out of the intensive outpatient group, and the response from the counselors was, well, they just weren't ready for it. They still have to hit rock bottom, Ted. They weren't ready for it. When they figured out, they'll come back around. And finally, I got enough courage because I'm a newbie in the field. And I said, what if, what if we failed them by not matching the appropriate treatment approach to where they're at? Like, why do we always say, like, they don't respond to our, really, in essence, what it was, was a cookie-cutter approach. So they yeah. went through the same program for the third straight time, and we gave them the same thing three times in a row. How come they haven't gotten better from it? Well, I get the part of personal responsibility for addiction. There's no doubt about that. But I really question some of our treatment approaches that we keep giving people the same treatment that's cookie-cutter and that hasn't worked in the past. And why do we keep doing that? And, and, and when you look at the actual treatment, it goes back, to, it goes back 30 and 40 years. You know, we've changed. The science has changed. Let's look at it. it that head-rod therapy, therapy recovery group, every program is individual. You know, and once you pass the assessment, which all the assessment is, it's me finding out if you're ready to do this deal. I also want is a glimpse. I don't need you to come and go, oh, yeah, let's go, Dr. Romero. No, I need a little glimpse inside that guy that's broken that says I really need help. The rest is down to me. You know, if he fails, I'm not sleeping at night. I know I'm getting on, on the jet and going down to see the family and sitting with him and bringing him back here. You know, I'm the one that takes it personal responsibility because there's no one size fits all. You know, I've taken people in who didn't want to be here, but I get excited about life. I get excited when I tell them, you don't have to go through this. You know, what's your passion? Well, I always want to be a singer in a band, right? Before you leave us, you'll be a singer in a band. You go, what? My parents said I could never be that. Well, you can be anything you want to be. Let's get into the game of life. It's, it, the alcohol and drugs, is, forget about that. When you first walk through the door, I guarantee you'll never do that again. Let's talk about getting your life back. Let's talk about things that you want to do in life, not what people want you to do in life. Because if you, if you start living life with somebody else, you're always going to relapse. If your thought patterns don't change, you're always going to relapse. It's always going to be the comfort blanket. There's a great case in, in England about 20 years ago where a girl got kidnapped and it was taken and she come, a 17-year-old girl. They couldn't find her or nothing. And they kind of, they stopped the manhunt. About six months later, the cops caught following police and following this car and he, didn't, he had a dodgy light or something, and he pulled him over, and he checked his car, and he found out they had two screwdrivers that were stolen from the local DIY store. So in England, when that happens, they can come back to your house and search their house to see, hey, you've got any other stuff stolen? Well, he found a huge box on the floor, and when they opened the box, it was the girl that was gone missing seven months before. He used to take her out and abuse her, sexually abuse her, and feed her, and then put her back in the box. That was happening for seven months. They opened the box, and she was still alive. She was bloodied, she was dirty, but she was still alive. The policewoman helped her out of the box and, and held her in her arms. 
What's the first thing she did, Ted? She got back in the box. Yeah, I was just she gonna. Got back in the box. That's addiction. Yeah. Throw the box away. Burn the box. Get rid of it. Go back to the scene of the crime and walk somebody through that and give them hope. Well, I've been to 17 treatment centers, yeah, but you've not done it right. Let me show you how we can do this right. Let's work together one-on-one. We, we are concierge, IOP, one-on-one kind of company. We, we work with the prestige people. We work with people who want it, prestige here, I mean. We work with people that really want to change their life. And once you get someone to that kind of standard or a little tiny glimpse of hope in their head, it's a done deal as far as I'm concerned. You can take that guy to a different place, but you've got to get rid of the box. If you don't get rid of the box, they're also going to get back in the box. You see, what people do sometimes in treatment centers is they show them the box and go, you don't want to go in there. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm an addict and alcoholic. If you tell me not to do something, I'm going to do it. So get rid of the box. Stop showing the box. Stop telling the box is an option for the future. Throw it away, burn it, smash it up. Do what you've got to do. Take it out of the equation for the, for the life in future. And only then will the understanding of how the brain works and that the subconscious brain will store all this stuff up. It stores the box up. It's got the box ready. The problem is if you can't find the box, you can't get back in it. Yeah. If you're using your pathways, you never know you say you can get in a car, make a call, drive, speak to the passenger. Don't even have to think about it. That's where you want to be with that 7.3 seconds and then your addiction. You want to go through that. If you're fighting addiction, I'm sorry, but that's not recovery. Yeah. That's hard. I really like that analogy of the box and this and yeah, tragic story. I mean, I don't like the tragic story part of it, but it is so relatable to addiction, meaning that the person in residential treatment comes out of the box, they go to the police officer, get the hug, but then the box really never disappears. It's maybe the first thing they see when they walk out the doors. It's like, it's jump like back it's in. right there waiting for them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, so that's why I think it's there. So therefore, you've got to ask yourself, is it, there, is it their fault to get back in the box? Well, no, it's not. Yeah. It's our job as professionals to make sure they don't see that box. Yeah. I th- and I think this kind of, fe- this kind of ties into, I-, I know you emphasize a lot about family work, which... You know, I've been around a while doing a lot of supervision, working a lot of different agencies, consulting. And, you know, it's one of the most evidence-based things to do is to have family therapy be part of the addiction counseling experience. But logistics, insurance, and a lot of other things interfere. So the places I come into, everybody's all for family therapy. Yes. But, like, nobody's doing it. No. Nobody's no. doing it. It's so important. Nobody's I, I, doing I, I, it. That's the problem, man. I mean, at the end of the day, treatment centers are a business. They have to pay staff. I get that. You see, what, what we do is because we're, we're able to do this because there's only four patients. That's only four hours a day. Is We spend four or five hours with, calling these people. We don't charge them for it. We work with them. So if you come on board with us and take the 90-day program which we offer, we're going to work with your family for 90 days. It doesn't cost you anything. You don't know anything about it. Because when we work with families, the family, when they come on, they go, oh, great. I'm so glad we're doing this. Let me tell you about little Johnny. And we go, whoa. It's ain't about little Johnny. It's about you. How you need to change if this is going to work. And it's a vital piece. But, you know, normal big treatment centers, like you said, they can't afford to do that. But that's one of the missing links for us. And that's why I think, that's why our success rate is so high. Because it's the little things like that that we are able to do, you know, because we're not a cost-effective treatment center. We're a bunch of guys who, who don't really need the money but want to help people. 
you know, especially me, I've been, I've been being homeless. I used to call my mom sometimes, he used to put the phone down on me. Talk about abandonment, you know, these guys, these alcoholics and addicts, I always ask a couple of things when they come in. Where was your abandonment as a child? What was your biggest trauma as a child? Have you ever got over that trauma? No, no. Why do you drink? Because I can't handle life anymore. Why can't you handle life? Because you haven't gone back to the scene of the crime. It's like a zip file on my screen, on my computer. I can stick all I want in that zip file and forget all about it. Do you know one day when I'm not looking properly, I'm on the phone, I click on it, it's all going to come out. When it comes out all at once, I, I relapse because I can't handle that. Yeah, I love this analogy of come back to the scene of the crime because what we mistake as the scene of the crime is the current moment with the person who's addicted to alcohol or drugs. That's the crime scene. They've stolen from their family. They've done this or that. But really what you're saying is the scene of the crime is set several years back, way back. And maybe people have not really even looked at that scene. And that scene really has a lot of the answers. But we stay focused on that current current scene. We we pick it up in, in current real time and we say that for sure is the scene of the crime. They've wronged us enough. They've lied to us enough. They're, they don't want to get help. I'm sick of it. Help us out. And then I just want to drop them off at the treatment doors, have you fix them. Yes. And then give them back to us. Where there's alcohol and addiction, there is always trauma. People go, well, not always. Always. I've had people come to me, well, I haven't had trauma, Rob. Oh, have you done a program? Oh, yeah. Did you do a step four? Yeah, there's your trauma. The, the book doesn't ask for $10 you sold off your grandmother 20 years ago. Ask for your grosser handcuffs. What the hell happened to you so you can turn to alcohol and drugs? And it can be, like you just said, I mean, I, we had a guy once come here, and he just couldn't stop. And, and he was a bad meth addict. And meth, I find the worst to try and get off people. And we took him back, and the scene of the crime for him is his father was a professional road racer. That's what he did for a living. And he took this guy, let's call him Greg. He took Greg uh, to all the races, and he got Greg running as a young kid. And at the age of nine or ten, there was a school race. And, of course, his dad turns up all proud. There's five people in the race, and the first four get T-shirts. He come fifth. And his dad scolded him for that. And he said he wasn't good enough. And he shamed him. And how he was this professional runner. You know, when we went back to the scene of the crime, Ted, we found out that Greg had been chasing that T-shirt for the last 30 years. Yeah. That's the stuff we're talking about. Not the not the relapse, not the argument preceding the drink. That's not seeing the crime. The seeing the crime is when it comes fifth. That's the stuff you need to clear up. Yeah. And people get that sometimes. And he's been racing the last last on the football team. Yeah, and he's been racing the last thirty years trying to get in the top three. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? crazy, And when we told him that, obviously he broke down, but his life his life started to take off again because he didn't want to change the t shirt anymore. Yeah. He comes to terms with it. Like, you know, we always, we always want to prove our parents. We always want to do things for our parents that, that please them. And he was a letdown. So what, what does that tell him about life? He's a letdown in life. Now, this guy, when he came to us, was working at Burger King. He was an educated guy with no confidence working at Burger King. He's now CEO of a flooring company earning $275,000 a year after coming to see us. Because you don't know who you are until we tell you who you are. We always joke about counselors and us. A counselor will ask you how you're feeling. We tell you how you're feeling until you get there. Well, well I think about how amazing you are. Yeah, I think about this guy, and I and, and I think like the answer isn't like hiding the booze from him. The answer was what he could feel like 
inside, deep inside, and be himself and what the possibilities would be for him and then to live out those possibilities. Because if yeah. you can't live those out, inevitably we're going back to the black box. It's, you, you're the only person I've ever spoke to in 15 years and, and nine years of doing podcasts. You've just said it right. You are right. If life doesn't get better, listen, I, I told you before, I was snorting cocaine and drinking alcohol with Elton John in the penthouse suite of the Savoy Hotel in London. Does life get any better than that? It has to. It yeah. has to. Otherwise, I'm going back. Life has to be a billion times better today. And that's what we convince people that it is. You know, we, we, we had a guy come, no addiction, nothing. Just come speak to girls and he was shy. That's all it. And we brought him in, we worked with him, we signed him on the program. I, I, I got a friend who owned a bar. And I paid 15 women to go in, for young girls to go in and sit around various places. And me and him walked in as if it was, because NLP, you can direct people what they're going to say. So he picked the bar, we went in the bar, and all these girls sat around. I said, pick the nicest girl in here, but you never speak to him. He said, the blonde over there. I said, come on. And he was, I had to pull him away from the bar, he was shaking that much. And we walked over, of course it's one of my girls that I'm paying to be there. We sat down, them two got talking, I stepped away. I mean, they had a great night, but obviously they didn't date because one of my girls, he never found out that they were placed there, but he got enough confidence that night that he was dating a week later and now he's married with four kids. You see, the mind doesn't know yeah. until you show it. You might have to stage it. It makes no difference, but when you find out what you are actually capable of doing and capable of achieving, your mind gets blown. It yeah. really does. Yeah, yeah. This is interesting because it, it is so true. I see it in so many ways, and I've just got to look at myself, and my own struggles, and then coming to terms with things. Is the mind and the thought process determine so much of what you think reality is? Yes. And then there's a few things that begin to change, and when those things shift, it's almost like new doors open. Um, and even though this was staged, a new door opened. Yes, and he got that confidence to speak to this woman, you know, and so when he went out the week after with his friends, he walked up to this woman and started speaking to her. He didn't know it was fixed. He didn't have to know it was fixed. He was, like, confident. I've done it before. I can do it again. It's like, once you do something, even if it's stage, your mind goes, oh, yeah, we've been here. Like, when guys come here and they're trying to be somebody or make some, I take them out to the Porsche dealership and I sit in the Porsches, take them out to the million-dollar houses. I sit in there for a bit because I tell them, prime the brain for success. Yeah. Once you get the course, because you will, your mind's not going to be blown. It's not I've been there before, and that's what it's about. If you can, if you can visualize, see it in your mind, you've been there before. It's attainable. It's achievable. That's the key to life that people talk about. Don't be afraid to visualize somewhere. If you believe in God, don't be afraid to ask Him for stuff. You know, we ask for so little, He wants to give us so much. You know, push that boundary. We push it with alcohol and drugs. We have no problem doing that. Why not push it with the great thing? I drive a Mercedes McLaren, for God's sake. It costs more than all my friends' houses that I have ever met. Why? Because I visualized myself in that. I walked over and I took that position. And that's what I get my patients to do. Don't be afraid of nothing. Because yeah. the guy there who's already doing it is no better than you. He just had a vision. Because that's all it is. A vision is a pre-thought to the action that you can, that you can actually achieve. It's like dreams, aren't we? Ever dream about something? It's in the brain, it's in the mind, it's possible. Yeah, you know. And once we realize, we can do it. Yeah, you know what I'm thinking of? I, I actually think of like three main things. I think of it's fear first, 
And then if we can get over the fear and visualize it, that's another thing. And I see a lot of like self-help development stuff. They always talk about visualization, but what there's a third key that you're naming that I think is so important is that you take some sort of physical action. Yes. So you like said, you wanted the McLaren, you probably went and actually took some actions to go look at them. Sat in it. Yeah, sat in it. Yeah, and sat in it, yeah. and it brought it much closer. Yeah. Where if you never do that, I think you stay somewhat blocked from getting completely yes. there. So you have to like work through the fear with a lot of courage, but get the visualization, reinforce it, but then continue to take action on it because the action yeah. is what ultimately will give you confidence. See, this is like one of the things, I'll, I'll go on to like a mini rant, but one of my things with a lot of the self-development stuff, positive psychology, et cetera, is this like idea of, you know, just think positive and things will be better. Granted, that is definitely beneficial. But ultimately, I think the rubber hits the road with action. The only, the only way things ever really change is you have to eventually take some sort of different action. You know, it's yes. like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. But it's like doing a different action. Take some one small different action that backs up a new visualization, a new possibility for you. Yeah, for any calendar every day to do. And, 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 you know, what somebody wants to tell me, Rob, if you want to earn 100 grand a year, start hanging around the guys that earn 100 grand a year. And if you want to earn 150, start hanging around the guys that earn 150 grand a year. And I'll tell you something about nothing. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Because even when we're at school, and the only, have you ever got a friend that you start to hang around, he has a saying, this girl's like, shut up! She used to always say it. And about a month into our, our friendship, I was going, shut up! And I stopped and I thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm copying her. So the people around you are so important that you have. It's like you will be influenced. Like the guys like hanging around the bad kids at school. Get him out because that's his future. We can't do that, you know. We've got to surround ourselves with people. Because when I say, you know, I, I want to, I want to, you know, I'm going to sign a million dollar deal in Dallas for for offices, and people are going, oh my god, oh god, you can't do that. My guys are going, hell, bro, what can we do to you if you don't make the payments? Are they going to take the office of you? That's a great idea. So I signed it. It's like all my guys around me are like, there's nothing we can't do. Tell, tell people the guarantee they can recover. Well, I do. I swore that with God. If God said to me, guarantee people recover, and that's what I do. I'm sat in Gordon Ramsay's house about eight years ago. And, uh, you know, the guy cooking on TV. Yeah. Um, and we sat around, and this was a game changer for me. And he said to me, we looked at each other, and he says, do you know why I'm the best chef in the world, Rob? And I went, I don't know, because you can cook pretty good. He went, hell no. I tell everybody I am. Boo! He's like, oh my God, is that it? And he said, yeah, that's all I do. So I started telling him, I tell everyone I was the best addictionologist in the world. I was the best mind in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the modern addiction world. And now the Priory in London are writing about me. Now the New York Times did a piece. It's like, tell them if you're that confident and you know what you can do. Make sure other people know. And that's another key to life is if I'm just going to sit in a one-bedroom apartment looking forward to an ex-benefit check, I ain't going to say so. I'm sorry, but I'm not. Some people can. I can't. I want as many people as I can to work with. I've worked with over 5,000. I want 10,000 people before I die that I've worked with. I want a legacy. I want people to remember who I am. You know, and it's not ego. It's just, it's the way it is. You know, and I always say to people, it's not ego. How can you have ego when you took the kids off me? Because they took my kids off the age of one and three. And the last thing my, my eldest daughter said at the age of three was, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. That's the name of my book. 
Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. It was the last thing she said. That was 22 years ago. And she would have nothing to do with me. Nine months ago, I'm just working with people. I'm getting on with my stuff. Nine months ago, I got a Facebook message. Hey, Dad, I'm missing you. I'd love to see you. I flew over there the next day. I held my daughter in my hands after 22 years. And what's more importantly, I held my crown and daughter for the first time she was one. Oh, wow. So it comes. You know, it comes. It's like when I was a kid, I used to, it was a top 40 Sunday night back in Manchester. Local radio station would play. I could run downstairs one night and I got on the phone all nervous. I said, Can you play a, a record for Rob? And he said, Yeah, it's on the playlist. I'll get paid. I'm like, Are you sure he's going to play it? It's on the playlist. Calm down, you'll play it. Put the phone down. I ran upstairs. I was beside that little tiny radio. It's all we could afford. I listened to it for four hours. And all of a sudden, this goes out to Robbie Manchester. Oh, the feeling was amazing. And my, my mom says, why did you wait so long? I said, because it was on the playlist. I knew it was going to get played. It's the same thing with the universe or God. Get it on the playlist. You know it's going to get played. Now, you don't know when, but you know it's going to get played. Get it on the playlist. God, put it on the playlist. Spirit of the universe, whatever it is, get it on that playlist. Get your friends on the playlist. It's going to get played. It always does. Yeah. The playlist is the key. Yeah, I like this idea of getting on the playlist, this new life that people will want when they're addicted. And the other thing I've always said is I have this phrase, like, likes, like, meaning if you're going to be a great alcoholic, you're not going to be hanging out with a bunch of people that go to AA. You're going to hang out with a bunch of people who are great alcoholics. If you're going to, and this kind of chimes in with what you're talking about with Gordon Ramsay and that sort of thing, is if you want to be in recovery or you want to make some changes in your life, hang out with people that have done some of that already. And that will probably help you more than if you stay put and look for your old friends to tell you new answers. Because if, if they haven't told you the way after 10 years, they're probably not going to come up with the new way. you got to yeah. go out and seek it. Yeah. So I, I really like that. Well, we, I know we got to probably wind down a little bit here, but um, anything you would say to somebody thinking about, um, you know, they've, they're torn up inside, they know alcohol or drugs are, you know, kind of leading them down the wrong path. Um, anything that you could say to them that, you know, yeah. that would come to mind? Yeah. There's a couple of things I want to say. First of all, is if you're sick and tired, and I'll say, sick and tired of being sick and tired. Even if you just want to change your life and you don't like the way you're drinking too much, you're depressed, uh, you're overweight, whatever it may be, now is the time to change. Change is like having a baby. You're never going to be ready, guys. You're never, I don't care if it's three o'clock in the afternoon when you see this, start your day now. You can change your life. I have never seen anybody fail who has a 100% belief that they can change their life. Listen, I'm only going to say this once because I don't want to advertise out there. But for the guys that are watching Ted right now, call me. I'll give you a 20-minute pep talk. It will change your life. It won't cost you anything. Just me and you on the phone. Direct to me. Call me. 210-600-0210. Call me. I'll change your life in 20 minutes. I guarantee you that. Because everybody who thinks they want to change can change. I'm living proof. It's virtually impossible to do what I've done. Yeah, I've done it. And everyone I know has done it. Surround yourself in friends. And I always remember this saying, I came up with it a couple of months ago, never share your dream with someone who doesn't share your dream. Oh, End of profound, story. profound, profound. And you're 
you're putting yourself out there. Not a lot of people do that. They might well, talk a good game. Call, if you call the uh, office nine times out of ten, I'll get it. I think, oh, is that Dr. Rob Kelly? Oh, yeah. Oh, I can't believe I've got you. Why not? I'm just an alcoholic like you. Yeah. I'll be telling you all that flipping great stuff you hear on the TV. I'll go right to my head. It's just me and you. Let's do this deal. Man, there are not a lot of people like you in this world, I'm telling you, Rob. There's not a lot of people that are willing to, like, pick up the phone. Like, call me. I'm ready for you. I love it. I love it. You're changing the world, man. Well, um, I usually end, um, obviously, any resources. I mean, we'll post some of your resources, like where you're at and how to reach you, that sort of thing. Anything else you would say is a good resource for a listener? Um, I'll tell you what is a good resource. I'm not just saying this because we everything we take from the book goes straight back into the community. So I'm learning nothing off this. But my book on Amazon, Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking, just get it and read it. It's not so much about alcohol and drugs. It's more of an inspirational story of people that I go through, whether you're just depressed or you suffer from addiction. Give it a read and see what you think and, and call me and email and tell me what you think. But it's just something good to read. And, you know, you can, you can call us. We, we can always help you. I don't like really giving other resources out there because we're so 100% into this that we're scared if we tell someone to go somewhere and it doesn't work out. Yeah. I'm going to get this night again. You know, I really take this personally. It really, you know, stays with me. It's like when I drop someone at a treatment center. I need to visit that treatment center. I need to know who they are, what they're doing, when they're doing it, and how they're doing it. I also need access to that patient every single day because I, I don't rest until they've gone back home and the family's reunited. Well, thank you. Well, here, I'm going to throw you on the speed round. you got 30 seconds to answer each of these questions, so do your best. Um, what is one of the biggest insights in the field of addiction and mental health treatment you've made? Uh, being able to change the, the neural pathways of, of the brain. And we talked about that. Excellent. If you could have learned something earlier in your career, what do you wish you would have learned? That everybody has the power to change another human being. Oh, I love that. Love that. Um, what is your favorite baseline? <laughs> My favorite baseline is, and I can't tell you why, is another one back to dust by Queen. By Queen. <laughs> All right. Because <laughs> um, we're music, <laughs> so I'm going off the path here. Um, favorite musician to play with? Uh, Freddie Music played, and it was um, without a doubt Queen, Freddie Mercury, without a doubt. What about the other? Do you still get to meet the other members of the band too then? Oh, yeah. I met John and, you know, the, I met all of them. They were just great guys. I spent a lot of time sat down with Freddie and uh, just uh, just a bunch of normal guys, talented. Uh, they went through the rough point like everyone else, but just a decent set of guys who has time still to sit down with you, especially Roger Taylor. He was awesome. Nice, nice. Um, and then the funniest thing that has happened to you over the past year? Okay, well, uh, four weeks ago, actually, we have a huge pool in the back that we're really proud of. And I forgot what day it was. I thought, we have a pool cleaner on Wednesday. And it's a couple of guys that come and clean the pool, very professional. And they have the gate code and everything. Well, I decided, because it was hot after a session, to jump in naked because I couldn't find my swimming costume. So I dived in naked and I'm swimming around with two guys walk up and back cleaning the pool, and I'm still swimming around and knocking on, and <laughs> just cleaning the pool, and everything. It's like, this has got to be the funniest thing I've done for months. <laughs> the chemist says, you've got to get out, because we've got to put the chemicals in. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, <I did. laughs> they handed you a towel? Yeah, they did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, 
Well, um, Dr. Rob, man, it's been just a fabulous hour spending time with you and kind of hearing about your insights. And, and you really, there's a lot of people that talk to talk, but you talk to talk and walk the walk. And, and you're an amazing human being. So I'm, I'm just glad you're out there on the front lines um, helping change people's lives and supporting them and offering them that sort of like new path that they can. And I, I love that phrase, impossible, I'm possible. It's one of these, with a pen. Yeah. It's a little apostrophe. Anybody can put an apostrophe in. Come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. No, thank you. It's been absolutely awesome. To you. So this is what I've done. I do about uh, 10 podcasts a week right now and TV and all that great stuff. I'll tell you what, this is the best one I've ever done in nine years. Just to feed off you, another musician, just absolutely a, a joy to speak with. Thank you so much. Oh, that's sweet. Thank you. Thank you. Hey there, Recovery Nation producer John here again. Thank you so much to Dr. Rob Kelly for sharing his time with us. You can learn more about today's guest and check out his book by visiting robkelly.com. That's R-O-B-B-K-E-L-L-Y.com. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools, including where to find a rehab center near you. This episode featured music by me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening.